And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going near to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt, tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as they had told him. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day that things would make for peace? But now they are hidden from your eyes. For, they, for the days will come upon you, and your enemies will set up a barricade around you, and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave you, will not leave one stone upon and another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his very words. Familiar stories. After, after a while, they start to seem like a fairy tale, kind of like the proverbial grandpa's fishing story that has this tendency to become just less believable over time as it grows and grows and grows. And there's a tendency for that to happen even as we come to something so familiar as the triumphal arrival of Jesus in Luke. And the challenge as we read this is seeing the Jesus of the first century and realizing that he is the same Jesus who has been raised up and is sitting on his heavenly throne ruling over your life and your world right now. So though this isn't a fairy tale, I do pray it grows and grows and grows. I do pray that this story becomes more and more significant the more times that we hear it, even though we feel like, oh, I, know, I know how this goes, I know how this story runs its course. It felt particularly necessary for us to push back on the tendency of the fairy tale and in order to do so, we have to grapple with this main point of the text. This Jesus in Luke is your king. That's what Luke is trying to tell Theophilus, the man he's writing to, is to show him that Jesus isn't just some guy that you heard about. He really is the king. And he is your king now. He's the one that tells the universe what to do and keeps the earth spinning. He's the king who directs entire cultures, who names families and establishes the borders of nations. 
Though all people are his subjects, he does have his special eye on his people, which is his spiritual kingdom, a kingdom that will succeed and that hell itself cannot stop. He's the king who rules over you with compassion and power, who is mighty and holy and knows your first and last moments of life, who saw you wake up this morning, who saved you, who is with you, and is revealing more about himself to you. That's this king, King Jesus. As Jesus is on the doorstep of Jerusalem, Luke is filling out the picture of what, the, what kind of king Jesus really is. And I hope that it will become clear that Jesus is a king like no other. He's unique because he's the king of the whole creation walking around on earth. He's the king of the universe riding on a donkey. It's remarkably simple but remarkably hard to grasp sometimes that this Jesus that we read in our Bibles is your king. There are three portraits of Jesus here in this chunk of text that unfold what kind of king he is. He's the king who is humble. He's the king who weeps for the wicked. And he's the king who is zealous. So we've been, we've been traveling around with Jesus. He's been to lots of places and taught and healed along the way. But he's not aimless. He's not wandering. He's headed somewhere, and he's told us most recently in Luke 19, 31, where he's going. See, we are going to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, for his disciples, is probably pretty exciting. The capital city, the temple, it's beautiful. But for Jesus, Jerusalem is the belly of the beast, so to speak, where he'll be mocked, betrayed, flogged, and be executed on a cross. And he doesn't just slip in the back door to accomplish all that. He em enters into Jerusalem with a very specific point to make. Point number one shows us the king who is humble. This is the first portrait. As he approaches Jerusalem, he makes his way around the Mount of Olives, which is adjacent to the city, through the towns of Bethany and Bethphage. You might recognize the town of Bethany. That's where Jesus' friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, are from. Bethphage is assumed to be a sort of like outer town on the edge of Jerusalem. So as Jesus is getting closer to the city, he takes two of his disciples and says, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying this colt? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. As it turns out, they go up to that village, and there it is, a colt tied up and ready to go. No one's ever used it before. But won't they be accused of stealing that colt? When they go to untie the colt, the owners ask probably what they're wishing. No one would ask them. They wish they could do their business and leave. Why are you untying the colt? And the disciples rely on what Jesus told them. They say exactly what he said. The Lord has need of it. As far as we can tell, that was all the convincing that the owners needed for the disciples to take that colt away. Now we can go, we can go on two routes here. Either the all-knowing Jesus knew exactly where a colt was ahead of time, which would just confirm that he is God, or he made an arrangement ahead of time for a very special and significant purpose, and he's using a kind of password 
to make sure the owners know that it's going to the right place. I think both, both of those options are, are very good and prove God's, God's all-knowingness, but also his wisdom as well. But whether, whether he knew beforehand or made arrangements, the owners ultimately just agree. They go ahead and agree to let the Lord borrow this young male donkey. And I'll say here that you can just be sure that Jesus is being very purposeful. He's got a plan, and it involves this particular cult right here. Not that there's anything special about that particular cult, but he, the, Lord, the Lord has need of it. He needs this. The plan becomes clear when the disciples bring the cult back. Verses 35 and 36, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the cult, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Back in 2 Kings 9, God suddenly anoints King Jehu. He anoints him the king of Israel to wipe out wicked King Ahab's royal line. But once Jehu is anointed, everyone immediately takes off their cloaks and they lay them in front of him, like a royal kind of red carpet, if you will. This sort of thing was meant for the arrival of God's anointed king. And during events like this, it was typical, though, for, for kings to come back from war or come back from, like, this anointing ceremony on a war horse to parade around to show, to show their strength, their wealth, their royalty, but not Jesus. This king's choice ride is a beast of burden. It's not an armored limo. It's a pinto. The irony is that, first of all, this doesn't even look like a king. Second of all, this doesn't look like a king who could deliver Israel from a mob of schoolchildren, much less the Roman army. That's the point. Jesus is a living example that God's weakness is stronger than man's strength. Because as he looks ahead to the cross, he's not looking to overthrow Rome. That's actually pretty small compared to what he has planned. He's looking to overthrow death itself. Isn't that just astounding? Here comes this man. He's riding on a donkey, and you have no idea that he has the power to atone for sin, bury death in the grave in which he rose from. But here he is, humbly sauntering along on a beast of burden. He's the king, a peculiar king to man's eyes, but anointed, an anointed king nonetheless. And he plans to make a statement by entering Jerusalem in this royal procession, this kind of parade. Some of you guys are going to see a parade later. Just this track, this path that is laid before him with cloaks. So that's why he tells his disciples to get a donkey. We'll take a quick moment here because I don't just want to reference it. I want, want you to see it with your own eyes. But turn to Zechariah 9 with me if you've got a Bible on hand. Zechariah is right there at the end of the Old Testament before Malachi. Zechariah 9, we'll start in verse 9. Zechariah 9, 9 through 13. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble 
and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoner. The prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Keep in mind that, that this is God speaking through the prophet Zechariah, predicting the arrival of the one who would restore God's people after their exile. They're currently lost. They're out of their country. They're, they're completely broken apart. They're in exile. And here he is saying, Rejoice, Jerusalem, your king, which you've longed for now for literally hundreds of years, is coming to you. The one who's going to deliver you and how are you going to know when he's here? How are you going to know? This, this is so significant that we've waited for a king ever since God made a promise to David that I'm going to establish your throne forever. How are we going to know? You'll know when he's here, when you see him riding a donkey. When you see that, get ready because deliverance is about to happen. And you see, Jesus is that king, the Zechariah 9 king, the one that most likely nobody had any idea, okay, who's this man? Who's this one? And they wouldn't know for a long time. And yet, here he is. He's the heir to David's throne. He's the one who is righteous and who has salvation. He's not the one who will come and slay with a sword like many of his disciples hoped for, not this time at least. In fact, many times the prophets look ahead to a deliverer who will rescue his people and destroy his enemies at the same time. But come to find out, those are two comings. Those are two different events. First, the rescue. Then second, finishing the job and bringing vengeance. Because he will wipe out his enemies in a very real way one day. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. But first, he's coming to speak peace. Peace to who? Zechariah says the nations, the United States, Turkey, Burundi, Kenya, Colombia, the world. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, as we heard a few weeks ago. And he seeks and saves the lost as a king who comes to speak peace and to bring a kingdom that is unseen but altogether real. Once it clicks for the crowd that this, this is the guy, the whole multitude of his disciples start rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice. Granted, we know that these people might still be expecting him to set off some fireworks when he goes in and takes Jerusalem by storm and gives Rome what for. But providentially, they're still proclaiming him as king, whether he's going to do what they expect him to do or not. We know that they'll eventually end up scattering once he's, once he's captured and crucified because this crowd, Luke describes the crowd as his disciples. These are his followers. So they'll scatter, but for now, they're saying something very true 
about Jesus. Here, here he is. They say the long foretold king is here. In fact, they quote Psalm 118, which is a song about the Lord bringing salvation. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Shouting and celebrating, they go on praising peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Remember that from the beginning of Luke, the angels who proclaim Jesus' birth, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among whom he is well pleased. This crowd of Jesus' disciples is erupting in joy over the realization that this is who they've waited for. So don't discount the fact that they, they're expecting him to do something that he's not going to do. They're expecting him to kind of ascend the throne. But that doesn't mean that they're wrong in proclaiming him as king. They're still right on the money. This is the king. And the reason why I think Luke is including this is to say, the crowd's right. This is the king. This is the foretold king, the one that everybody should be on the lookout for. Then here come the Pharisees who, who just couldn't imagine a worse or like anxiety-producing scene. This teacher being hoisted up as if he were the king with this mob shouting and singing, thinking that Jesus might have some sense and that he disagrees with this whole display. They say to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Simply put, there's nothing that's going to stop this proclamation. If these people wouldn't say that Jesus is king, then the rocks would do it for them. And Jesus isn't fighting it because the statement being made here is utterly true. He's not saying, stop, 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 that's not right. He, he is certain that this is a display and a... Uh, a Welcome that's fitting for a king. So how does Jesus' arrival in humility affect us? How does it matter that this picture shows us that this is our king? This is what he looks like. Well, I have to, I have to say just this morning as I was thinking about it, it matters for what we're doing here on Sunday morning. It matters that there is a king in heaven overseeing this gathering, and that as his word goes out in song, in preaching, that he's overseeing that, and so long as his word is being preached faithfully, that he's using it. He's, he's working in this church family. I, I've, I can't help but think of the Lord's kind of been bringing this to mind over and over, but a, 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 a small picture that, that right above our heads is the glory of the king. He's not, he's not far away from this gathering that's going on each and every Sunday. And he is presiding over this place, having his people come together to praise his name, to be taught, to be fed, to be nourished, encouraged. That matters. And it matters that he's been a humble king riding on a donkey because this is actually the pathway that he ascends that heavenly throne you know Philippians 2, that he was humbled to death, but God has highly exalted him, giving him a name that is above every name. So that was the path. It was downward. It was into the grave, and it was up again. But here he sits, presiding over us, our king who's humble. And doesn't it fill your heart 
to the brim, knowing that he held off on coming with vengeance so that he could first be killed to save you. He, he, he could have done both at once like the prophets were preparing for, but he chose to come to speak peace first. And we bask in the wonder of that. He did not have to do that, but your king chose to do that. I want, I want that one to be my king. I want a king who loves me. And he's a king like no other because his mission is to seek and to save the lost. That's, that's his form of conquest, to seek and save the lost. Is it not comforting to know that the king who once sat on a donkey is sitting in heaven knowing exactly what it's like to suffer? Doesn't that inform what you're going through right now? Man, my king has been here before. He's got dirt on his feet. He's bled before. He's hurt before. I want a king who understands me. I want a king who knows what this grind is like. I want a king who knows what discouragement and despair feels like or rejection or whatever it might be. It's comforting. If you believe in Jesus, you're in on the blessing of being in the king's house. You are under his care and his rule, and you're an heir to his beautiful kingdom. He came humbly, but that doesn't mean he was weak when it comes to saving his people or keeping his people or delivering his people on that final day. He is strong. He is not ruled by anyone. His throne won't be threatened and his kingdom will not fail. I found myself just refreshed by how secure I feel under the shadow of the king's throne this week. Most days, I'm, I'm swallowed up with anxiety. I'm, I'm burdened with fear as if everything's just about to fall apart, or I might just be plain weary. So believing that Jesus is the king is not the silver bullet to our suffering. It doesn't just eradicate it. But you can bet it can bring peace to the worst of situations, the absolute worst of situations. The, the one that came to mind was, was Paul being stoned. Not, not the first time, but the second time. He's been stoned once already. How on earth does he make it through a second time? Oh, surely, there's some thought in Paul's mind that my king is on his throne and there's no one that's going to touch him. There's no one that can remove him. He understands the suffering I've been through. He's even been through worse than being stoned to death. How else have some of you withstood just a lifetime of hurt and rejection, a crippling season of depression, unexpected loss, isolation, because Jesus rules over you and he will not lose a single one of his sheep and he will see his work to completion. That's what kind of king he is and he's humble. His humility shows even more clearly in this point we're about to come to as he draws closer to the city. He's pressing on to the city and this city has a less than warm welcome for him. Point number two, portrait number two, the king who weeps for the wicked. 
as Jesus rounds the Mount of Olives, he catches the first glimpse of the city. If you can imagine, there's, there's a mountain in front of him. He's got to go around it. There's the city in front of him. And as he sees Jerusalem, rather than a, a king smiling as he's headed to his throne, he weeps. Why is he weeping? It says he's weeping over Jerusalem. He says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Just before you cry, isn't there just like this surge of emotion that is literally un uncontainable? And it comes out in the form of sobs and tears. Jesus was human like you and me, and he cried. But he's also a God who cries too. We only hear of Jesus crying a few, on a few specific occasions. So why this moment? Tears fall from the king's eyes because he knows that, that that city up ahead will not see him for the king and deliverer that he is. They will see him as a criminal. And his grief, his grief isn't, isn't that he would be well-liked, that he's not going to be, they're, they're not going to like me. His grief is based on the fact that it would take what it would take for them to be at peace with God, which is seeing him as the true king of heaven and earth, is totally hidden from them. There's a gravity here. His, his disciples are celebrating. They're, they're laying out their cloaks in front of him and rejoicing. And here he comes and he breaks down in tears. I was hit as I read Thabiti Anyabuile on this. He says, Hear the Son of God with all power and glory looks on the city of sinful man. Thunder doesn't rumble and lightning does not flash in divine curses. The earth does not quake in destruction. Instead, rivulets of tears flow down from the Savior's face. He weeps for the city, for entire cities, for entire communities and entire nations. He weeps because what he has come to bring has somehow escaped them. Jesus weeps on three occasions in Scripture, just three. You can, you can probably assume that there was more, but the importance of those three is key. He weeps once for his dead friend, Lazarus. He weeps once as he's on the doorstep of death in Gethsemane. Those are significant moments, both personally and, like, cosmically. But this time... He weeps as a people he loves will never find the peace they so desperately need. Ironically, Jerusalem literally means the city of peace. But it will be nothing but peaceful towards Jesus, nor will it even avail itself to the peace that he's intending to bring. So I'd ask you this morning, What's your posture towards Jesus this morning and, and how might this inform that? Jesus is walking proof that our blindness or willful rejection of him grieves him. If you're here with your back tor turned towards God because you feel like 
is cruel. Look at Jesus here. Just take a peek. He is grieving over you. He's not indifferent to those who reject him. This is what 2 Peter 3, 9 means. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing, he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's, that's speaking of his, his heart. He's grieving. He wants you to come to him, giving up your striving, and instead relying on his strength so you can enjoy the peace that he brings. He's not cruel. He's not cruel. He is patient. And he grieves in the meantime. Friends, kind of along these same lines, some of you ache for those who have not experienced the peace and salvation that Christ brings. I've, I've heard, heard this from you, seen this from some of you who are aching. Your children or your brother and sister-in-law or your mom or dad or your childhood friend, maybe a spouse, maybe an ex-spouse, maybe your aging parents or your grandparents, You've, you've wept for them. Or perhaps Jesus' tears here will give way to new tears for you, weeping for those people, over those people. You've longed for them to be saved. Lest you think that God is working against you in this moment, just look at Jesus grieving. In his mysterious purposes, that person that you ache for may never be saved. But that doesn't mean that he's glad about it. Once again, he is patient. And if they trust in Christ, he will send his spirit to make them alive. But until then, I would venture to say that no one hurts more for that person than Jesus himself. As much as, much as you felt of real grief, it's not that his grief is like yours, it's that your grief is so much like his. Though Jesus shed tears, that does not mean for Jerusalem or anyone else who goes on rejecting Jesus as their king that they will go unpunished. So it's, it's out of this grieved heart that he pronounces the fate of this city. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. So as he sees this sprawling city in front of him, Jesus is picturing it being surrounded, burned, and just totally leveled. All for what, though? Look at that last line. Because you did not know the time of your visitation, or as another version kind of clarifies, because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Jerusalem will face very real consequences for their willful and continual rejection of this king who is sent to save and who even is brought to the point 
of weeping over them. You might think that if they saw Jesus weeping, certainly something, something would change. But that's not true. They rejected the very one that they did not know that they were waiting for. The fortified capital city of the Jews will be completely destroyed for that single reason. Just over a week ago, we saw a Miami apartment building topple to the ground. I think Miami, I might have the city wrong. And that disastrous loss and destruction associated with the tragedy is, is horrific, unexpected. But imagine this whole city torn down stone by stone. That's what Jesus is predicting, total destruction. And here's the, here's the deal with what Jesus predicts. In just over 30 years from when Jesus said these words, that very thing happened. In, eight, in 70 AD, during the first Jewish-Roman war, Titus Vespasianus and his Roman army sieged, starved, and destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed its walls and the temple too, along with taking thousands of survivors prisoner. That was a real event in history that was decisive judgment predicted by Jesus. And it happened because God's own chosen nation refused to receive Jesus as king. Listen closely to what Peter says as he's preaching the good news in Acts 2. This is after Christ's resurrection, after his ascension, and he's in Jerusalem preaching. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So God planned for this. But you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God planned it, but these people were responsible for what they do to Jesus, just as we are responsible for how we respond to him. God, God does orchestrate it, plan it, and, and yet we're involved in that decision, and we are responsible for how we respond. And for King Jesus, the fact that he came into his own and his own received him not grieves him. But do you see that Israel had to reject Jesus in this way in order for salvation and peace to go out beyond its border to the nations. That's at least what Paul says in Romans 11, 11. Through their trespass, that is Israel, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And whenever we read Gentiles, it's like, that's, that's us. Because of their rejection of Jesus, even this week that we're reading of in Luke, their rejection of him has brought the gospel to us in the Lord's mysterious plan. So though he weeps for now, for the joy set before him and the inheritance of a kingdom, he presses on to the cross. And as we continue on through the next week of his life, his next stop is in the temple itself. Portrait number three is the king who is zealous. Verse 45, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus finally makes it into the city and he enters the temple. The temple is on 
the near side of the city. And this is the place where countless people, this is Passover week, countless people, countless animals are funneling into this place, this temple where they will worship God, celebrate the Passover together. I was reading a, a small piece of history that, that when the temple was finished, this temple was finished, um, Josephus says 255,000 lambs were sacrificed during this week of Passover. That's incredible. So you can imagine at the celebration, countless people, countless, just a crowd, a mass of people just kind of pressing their way into the temple. And in the midst of all of this commotion, Jesus, as, as we know from the other gospels, is angry. And he starts driving those out who were selling things or animals out of the temple. But why? Why, why in the midst of all the commotion, focus in on these people? Why did this ignite Jesus' righteous anger? Well, verse 46 is clear. These people have turned the temple into something that it's not meant to be. They were exploiting it as a place where they could make a profit, even if deceitfully, and could still hide it and get away with it. You know, because it was temple business. It's religious stuff. It's kind of untouchable. People need sacrifices, right? Oh, here you go. Here's one for 1999. Certain people have turned this place where God was meant to dwell with his people in an accessible way into a lucrative storefront. What's worse is this was happening in the outer court of the temple, which is where God-fearing Gentiles would worship. In fact, it was as close as they were allowed to get to the temple. This was reserved for those people to be able to have a, a bit of access to God. But as Jesus comes into the temple, he finds that space where God becomes accessible to the nations overrun with businessmen like rats. And in anger, he chases them out. Get out. The house where God dwells and where the Son of God now stands is meant to be a house of prayer where the Gentiles can come worship God along with the Jew, not a cave where thieves lurk and rob people. Like I mentioned before, Jesus has bigger plans than Rome here. He's got the world in mind, and he wants the world to be restored to fellowship with God. And so he, he's symbolically clearing the way, which, you know, will culminate in a veil being torn, and then the good news going from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. He is a trailblazer for salvation. He is making a way for God to be accessible to the world and not just his chosen nation, Israel. When he says, my house shall be a house of prayer, Jesus is quoting Isaiah 56, 7. And through it, we see that he's, he's zealous, he's determined. We'll unpack Isaiah 56 in a moment, but just like what we looked at in Zechariah 9, whenever we see Jesus or the New Testament writers quoting something from the Old Testament, and it's, and it's really brief. It's, you know, if it's small, we should, we should look at a bigger chunk because more often than not, they are referencing a bigger piece. They're saying, hey, here's a hint, but look at the whole chunk because he says only eight words, my house shall be a house of prayer, but those eight words are a small part of Isaiah 56, which is kind of preloaded into what Jesus is saying. 
I hope as we read that, you'll see Jesus' heart for the nations. Isaiah 56, starting in verse 3. Let not the foreigner who, sit, who has joined himself to the Lord, so take that as like a, a God-fearing Jew in this case, or God-fearing Gentile, sorry. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Don't, don't let him say that. And don't let the eunuch say eunuchs were considered unclean. They, they could not be in the temple because they were unclean. Don't let the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So you can see there's two examples, a, a eunuch and a foreigner. Don't let them say that they don't belong here. Don't let them be shut out from my house. In fact, if they come, if they come to me, if they come to me in faith, I will give them a station better than sons and daughters. I will, I will rejoice in them. I will let them sacrifice on my altars. So you can see, if, if this is in the back of Jesus' mind, and here's the court of the Gentiles, just so packed and so um, misused that you might imagine a eunuch or a foreigner kind of like knocking on the door, hoping that they can find some space. Get out of my house. My house will be a house of prayer for all peoples. I am going to make a way for them. I will gather yet others besides those already gathered. There are sheep that aren't yet in my fold, and I'm going to find them. I'm going to seek and to save them. Jesus is zealous for those who belong in his kingdom, and he refuses to let these barriers stand in the way of the redeemed and God, so he casts these people out. Jesus is zealous for people to be able to come to him. We talked a little bit about that with Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees of tying up burdens that are too heavy for even themselves to carry. That's just a picture of you're, you're not making me accessible to broken people. It's similar here. You are shutting them out. Make room. Make way. He's zealous. Why else, why else would he have gone to the cross if he wasn't zealous, if he wasn't determined to ensure salvation to us? If you could wish that the king who rules over you today were most passionate about one thing, what would it be? Would it not be that he will stop at nothing for his father to be glorified at bringing you into his kingdom? He's zealous for that. It's reassuring to know that Jesus will stop at nothing to, to grab at the frayed ends of a severed relationship between himself and sinners and draw them together 
never to be severed again. He is a king like no other, and he's your king. He's your king right now. And here's, here's what, what I'm wrestling with here. It's, it's just so easy to see Jesus as the one who came, yes, who, who died, absolutely, and, and even disappeared into heaven. Now what? I've staked my life and trusted in this reality that Jesus makes me right with God, that he's the way to eternal life, that he spares me from eternal hell and that I'm a part of his kingdom. But what does it mean today that he's my king? We've already touched on this a little. But it means that the same flesh and bones Jesus who rode a donkey into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, who went from carrying a cross on his back to being flat on his back dead, is the same Jesus who ever lives to rule us, to make intercession for us, to advocate for us, and who will return to rescue us. He is the risen Lord who bodily went up to heaven and who is one day going to return in power with a name written on his thigh that says, King of kings and Lord of lords, the Alpha and Omega who has all authority over heaven and earth. That's him. That's, that's the Jesus that we're reading about right now, and that's the Jesus who rules right now. It's no fairy tale. And as believers, one of our greatest spiritual fights for tomorrow morning or, or this afternoon will be to fight to believe that Jesus really is king over everything that we know, over trials, over governments, over circumstances, over our hearts, and over the evil one. But in the meantime, let these portraits tell you what he's like. He's a king like no other king. He's humble. He weeps over the wicked, and he is zealous. That's who our king is. And, and I pray that, that that would cause us to be glad to be in his kingdom because we're safe in his kingdom, but that it would also embolden us as well. Like I said, Paul being stoned the second time, what sent him out in between stoning one and stoning two to continue to proclaim the gospel? And like I said, if, if you are in a spot where your back is turned to God, see, see him weeping for you. He wants to see you come to him, return to him. As we come to the Lord's Supper, we see Jesus remaining in the temple in verse 47 and 48, where Luke Luke gives just a little clue. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Jesus kept on teaching, but he was being tracked down. Now, now right when he's coming into the temple and he's teaching, now isn't the time for the priests and the scribes to pounce, but there will come a time where they will find a way. And that king, like no other, will do the unthinkable. He'll hand his life over to ransom and gain for himself a people, including this church family. So as we come, come here, we pick up the bread and cup, and we say, he really, he really is a king like no other. He was a king who died and was raised for me. And, and I, as, we, as we take and drink and eat, um, he's not just one who was killed, so to speak. He, 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 he gave his life over. He took his life back up 
And we proclaim that until he comes. We proclaim that until he returns for us. So this table is for you who have been forgiven of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't, you don't have to be perfect or sinless to participate in the Lord's Supper. That's part of what we celebrate here is that, that he has paid the price, that Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. So you're invited to come by faith, grieving the fact even that your sin sent Jesus to the cross, but rejoicing that he was determined to go to that cross to save you and to bring you into his kingdom. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you just not partake in communion. Only those who have received Jesus should receive communion. We encourage you to use this time to consider what kind of king Jesus is and whether or not giving your life to him and trusting his sacrifice is worth it. I can assure you that it is, and you can trust him today if you want. In the meantime, church family, we have, we have cups in the front, cups in the back. Uh, the front has gluten-free crackers if, if you need those. But let's come and grab and take some time in our seats before we share together.